We're calling this weekend Navigating Faith in a World of Doubt. And as we do that, it's worth saying that faith is a contested notion. What I mean by that is if you go out and talk to different people, then they'll have different understandings of faith. They won't all agree. On one hand, there's a kind of cynical view of faith, which is it's a bit like um, Alice in Wonderland who shuts her eyes and says, I'm going to believe 10 impossible things before breakfast. And so that's what people who have religious faith are doing. They're believing impossible things in spite of um, there being no evidence. On the other hand, I think there's been a real softening in the last couple of years because we've been through such difficult times through COVID and Black Lives Matter and the division in politics, for example. And I find an increasing number of people saying to me pastorally things like this, you know, Pete, I, I wish I had faith or I wish I had your faith. But they then often go on when I push into it to say, but, but I just can't. And when I press them on why that is, it's usually something around the idea that uh, they've been let down or um, that things and institutions and people are untrustworthy. In other words, it's what has been called the hermeneutic of suspicion. Back in the early 1990s, there was a piece of graffiti on an American university wall that said this. We used to trust the politicians, but Watergate changed all that. We used to trust the generals, but Vietnam changed all that. We used to trust the scientists, but Three Mile Island changed all that. Now we have no one to trust. That's the hermeneutic of suspicion. And we could bring it more up to date, of course, couldn't we, from 1990 to the 2020s with um, rather than Vietnam, Iraq and the lack of weapons of mass destruction, rather than Watergate, you know, lockdown parties at Downing Street and, you know, rather than Three Mile Island and the disaster there. It could be any number of um, scientific disasters, you know, global warming or um, getting COVID predictions wrong or whatever it is. In other words, because people have got it wrong and because they've made mistakes, because they've let us down, we don't trust anybody. And the church and God are seen as all part of that, right? So as we navigate our way through this this weekend, I want us to look at two particular areas, hope and identity, that are absolutely foundational for understanding Christian faith, understanding faith in Jesus Christ. And I want us to see how they give us the kind of foundations to be able to navigate and cope with life in a complex, difficult and often stressful World. So let's start by thinking about hope. And as we do so, I'm going to think about hope um, from 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 9 and three headings. Hope for life, hope for suffering and death or hope in the face of suffering and death and rejoicing in hope by way of application. So let's think first of all about hope for life. It's important that as we speak about hope, we define hope because English language is quite imprecise in this area. And on one level, hope can mean a kind of vague optimism you know I hope that um, uh, you know something will happen uh, but with no expectation of fulfillment for example years ago I used to hope in a vague and vain way that Leicester City would win the Premier League now I rejoice in reminding everybody that they have but I never expected it to happen no one who supported Leicester City or people who grew up in Leicester like I did ever thought they would um, it was a vain hope a vague hope but in Greek, there's another word for, for hope, which implies a certain hope. It's alpizo, and it means a sure hope, a hope with a reasonable expectation of fulfillment. Um, let me give you an illustration. My wife set a record for being the latest bride at the altar um, of uh, the church where we got married at some 14 years ago. Now, if you're being maybe a bit uncharitable, you can think, well, I can see why she would have pause for thought, Pete. But putting that to one side for a moment, there I was sitting at the front of church, you know, the time kind of came and went five minutes, you know, late. And, um, you know, I kind of thought fashionably late, five minutes late, no problem, right? 
Then it went to 10 minutes, then 15 minutes. And around about 15 minutes, the conversation noticeably changed in the room, or rather, um, you could feel the change in the room. You know, people whispering, do you think she's coming? Yeah, surely, I mean. Well, maybe not. I mean, it is Pete. No, no, she was definitely coming. And then at 20 minutes, it was getting very, I was very, very nervous at the front of church. Now, up until that point, I probably had an optimistic, vague sense of hope that she was coming. But on 20 minutes, something significant happened. One of my ushers came to me at the front of church and he'd just been on the phone. He said, I've just spoken to the bridal party. They're on the way. They're stuck in traffic on the Holloway Road. Arsenal are playing at home today. She's coming. And at that point, I had hope. Sure hope, certain hope. Worth saying she was 40 to 45 minutes late, so that's the record. Now, here's the point. Hope is not just a, a break glass in, type of emer in case of emergency type virtue. It's not just for the rainy day or the difficult day, but hope is for life. That's why Peter says what he does in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living hope. It's not a, a dead hope. It's not just something for difficult times. It's something for life. It's alive now. It infuses and energizes our labors and our endeavors in the now. Richard Bockham um, is a philosopher, sociologist, and he wrote this in his book, From Hope Against Hope. Hope is among those capacities or activities which mark off the territory of the distinctively human in our world. The quest for meaning, truth, goodness and beauty is closely bound up with hope as an activity of imagination in which we seek to transcend the boundaries of the present to go beyond the given outwards and forwards in search of something more, something better than the given affords us. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look, everything we do is done by hope. You want to you know, you want to change as a person, you want to think about morality and improving as a human being, that's an exercise in hope as you think of yourself or you think of other people as they could be, as you should be, as you want to be in the future. And so you move outwards and towards it in hope. Politics is all about hope as we envisage a better society and we strive together towards that in the future to bring it about. Art, Gerhard Richter, the modern artist, famously said, art is the highest form of hope. Because, why do you say that? Well, because in, in art, you'll think about new aesthetic possibilities and you're pushing out towards them in hope, whether musically or, you know, with a paintbrush, for example. You want to innovate and create new technology? That's an exercise in hope as you see a new world, a new possibility, a new innovation, and you move towards it. In other words, everything we do in life is infused by hope. And Peter is saying that, therefore, when we turn to Jesus Christ, we get given a living hope, a hope that energizes our labors now. And I wonder if you noticed how much we need that, because in our society at the moment, there is a shrinking horizon of hope. Um, one of the um, great films of the last couple of years is Avengers Endgame. It's kind of end of an era um, film, right, for those who'd followed the kind of Marvel cast all the way through um, the, the films. And in Avengers Endgame, in the first hour is all devoted to this theme of what happens when a society loses hope. And it's played out in the lives of the key characters. So Captain America is now a grief counsellor. He attends groups and seeks to help people with their grief and their loss of hope. Um, Natasha Romanoff, Black Widow, is, becomes a workaholic. She sits at a desk all the time, barely eats a sandwich, just always working, ploughing herself into work. Thor 
becomes a uh, recluse. He just games and drinks alcohol all the time. In other words, he, he's, he's indulging in escapism. He's not engaging with the loss of hope. He's trying to forget it and just get drunk all the time and play video games. And then you've got Hawkeye, perhaps most tragically of all, who's just angry, bitter, cynical of the world. And then the key moment in the film comes when Black Widow turns up to Hawkeye and she says, you know, there might be a way to undo everything that's happened. And he says to her, don't give me hope. She says, I'm sorry, I couldn't have given it to you sooner. In other words, you'll see in those four characters that the ways we deal with a shrinking horizon or a loss of hope in society, grief and counselling. Um, then there's workaholism, just trying to, you know, make it go away by ploughing ourselves into work. Then there's escapism by ploughing ourselves into substances or video games or, or films and never thinking about the bigger picture of life. And then there's bitterness and cynicism and anger in Hawkeye. I wonder if you think of your life or think of your friends, if you notice those familiar themes. But what Peter is saying in 1 Peter 1 verse 3 is that if we trust in Jesus Christ, we have a living hope. And it's not just a vague hope, but it's a certain hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. In other words, he's saying it's sure, it's certain. How is it certain? Well, it's as certain as the resurrection of Jesus Christ that took place in space, time and history. Attested to by the empty tomb. Attested to by the astonishing witness of the disciples who never changed their story despite being persecuted and killed for their faith. Attested to by hundreds of people who saw the risen Jesus, you know, physically there with them over a number of days, weeks and even a month. Attested to by the church and the scriptures witnessed throughout the centuries, unchanging this commitment to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the certainty of the Christian hope and it's a living hope. Hope for life. Secondly, hope for suffering and death. One of the great challenges we face when dealing with hope is to avoid two common pitfalls that I, I think we see particularly society going into today. Um, that it, Think of um, hope like a ship that has to navigate a course sailing between the rocks of, on one hand, naivety that will dash hope, and on the other hand, the rocks that will dash it of cynicism. Naivety will break apart hope because a person who is naive you know is hopeful and is optimistic and the world's a wonderful place and everything's sunny but then they get taken in um, because they put their hope in the wrong things or wrong people or wrong institutions and you can be naive maybe in your teenage years or early 20s but sooner or later life bites and so there's no hope there you've been naive you've been taken in so therefore there are other people who say well I'm not going to be naive I know the way the world the world's a hard place a difficult place and so they're cynical. In other words, they don't have hope. Hope? <laughs> yeah, I used to believe that when I was a child, but now I'm an adult, I've grown up. But the problem with cynicism is it hardens your heart. You have no hope, you, you, you shrink back from the ability to form trusting and meaningful relationships. You never think that anything good is happening to you, so even when something good does happen to you, you can't really enjoy it because your heart has become hard, um, inured to the world. But look at the context where Peter is talking about hope. Verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Verse 6, he's talking about sufferings, all kinds of sufferings, any suffering. He's not restricting it. I mean, certainly when Peter was writing this um, letter, it was in the context of the early persecution of, sorry, early persecution of Emperor Nero, who blamed Christians for the fire in Rome. And so it was the first statewide persecution of the church. And Peter's aware of that in the early to mid 60s when he's writing it. And he will go on, of course, famously and suffer um, and ultimately be martyred for his faith. So there's a suffering here for, for faith, but he still says we have hope in the midst of suffering. In other words, this is not a, a hope, a Pollyanna optimism in spite of suffering. It's a hope in the midst of suffering. And then he talks in verse seven of, and hints at this, even when you die, you still have hope of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. So how can we face, face suffering and death and still have hope? Well, it has to be a hope that's not naive, and it has to be a hope which can overcome cynicism. And this is where the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important, because it, it can't be a naive hope. Think of where the resurrection took place. The resurrection took place in the tomb. The women who went, as we're going to remember in Easter in a few weeks' time, who went on that early first Easter morning, were going to do something... Now, well, there's no way to sugarcoat this. They were going along to the tomb to anoint the body because in the Middle Eastern sun, it was going to start stinking after three days. So they were going to pour perfumes on it to stop it smelling. I mean, that's just a gritty reality. But it was in the tomb where Jesus was risen, in the place of death. It was an honest confrontation with death. And of course, why had Jesus died? Well, he died on the cross. And he died for human sin. In other words, the cross is a confrontation with the reality of the human condition that says, you want to not be naive? You want to know what people are capable of? You want to be realistic about how difficult the world can be? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that is what people are capable of. They're capable of killing the best man who ever lived, the Lord of glory, God himself, the creator. They put him on a cross. Sin is so serious that Jesus had to die for it on the cross. There was no other way of dealing with it. There's no naivety there. The world can get so bad and so twisted that the best man who ever lived, a man who never did anything wrong, who lived a life of perfect love, gets crucified. That's how awful the world can be. There is death, there is suffering, horrendous suffering in the world. This is the hope of the Christian life, not some naive Pollyanna optimism, but an honest engagement with the difficulties of the world. Christian says, you want to know how bad the world can get? Look at the cross. You want to not be taken in by people? Look at what people can do to Jesus on the cross. You want to know how awful suffering can be? Look at the Lord of glory suffering on the cross. No naivety there. But equally no cynicism, why? Because the tomb is empty. Because Jesus is risen. So it's not naive, but equally it's not cynical. In other words, the cross isn't the end of the story. It's a crucial, crucial part, literally, of the story. But then there's the resurrection when Jesus rises from the dead. J.R. Tolkien's one of the great storytellers of the modern era, of course, with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, and he wrote a short little essay um, about fairy stories and about what makes them so myths and fairy stories and what makes them so special. And in it, he talked of something that he called the Ev catastrophe. A catastrophe, technically in English um, literature, means a turnaround. It doesn't mean a bad turnaround, it means a turnaround. Um, the moment when everything changes. And ev in Greek means happy. So he was talking about the happy turnaround. He's saying the great moment in stories or in myths or in fairy tales is when there's the great turnaround. 
um, when Beauty finally loves the beast and he's in a moment transformed back into the, the handsome prince and the whole castle and all his servants with him. When Rapunzel saves Flynn Rider, right, entangled and she, um, you know, she heals him and he kind of comes back to life again. That moment when everything changes in the fairy story and it's that moment when with my six-year-old son and my four-year-old son, I'm reading the stories to them or we're watching a film and they turn to me and they say, Daddy, is it true? Could it be true? I wonder what do you say in that moment? I mean, if you do, you, do you lie to your children and say, oh yeah, it's true, it's true, and just leave the hard conversation for later down the line? <laughs> That's just naive. Or are you cynical? You say, no son, it's not true. In real life, people don't come back from the dead. Sleep well. <laughs> I mean, that's not gonna help a child, is it? It doesn't help adults either. But you know, if you know the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you know the hope of the gospel, you know what you can say? Son, this is just a story. It's a wonderful story. But let me tell you about a true fairy tale, a true story, when a man rose from the dead and the difference that makes to life. You know, the pupils dilate, the, the heart lifts. It's not naive, it's not cynical, it's hope. What would I ask? Do you believe that? Do you have that hope? Do you want it? Let's look finally, as we apply this, at rejoicing in hope um, by way of application. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How can we rejoice in hope? Three things. First of all, joy comes in the midst of suffering, not in spite of suffering. Joy comes in the midst of suffering, not in spite of suffering. Verse 8 is often quoted, you know, though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. It sounds kind of triumphalistic, but it's key that it's done in the context of the suffering of verse 7. In other words, joy, real joy, doesn't come in spite of suffering, it comes in the context of suffering. Because here's the point, Christian joy is not predicated, is not dependent on circumstances. It's easy to think, I will be joyful if dot, dot, dot. I'll be joyful if I get the right job. I'll be joyful if that tension in the relationship resolves. I'll be joyful if I get the life partner that I've always longed for, the husband or wife I've always longed for. I'll be joyful if my children start behaving themselves. I'll be joyful if I get um, the right circumstances, that right flat or that right lifestyle. I'll be joyful if I get the right number of followers on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. In other words, we're predicating our joy and our happiness on circumstances. But that's just naive because live in the world for a bit of time and you know that we never get the circumstances we want. And even if for a brief moment in time we do, we spend our whole time being so anxious they're going to be taken away from us and that sucks all the joy out of it. Now, if you, if you evaluate your prayers, are your prayers always about circumstances? That's not wrong, of course. You can pray for all kinds of things at all times to our Lord Jesus Christ. But but pray better for joy in the midst of circumstances. A joy that is not defined by circumstances. That's the hope of the Christian life. Secondly, our joy is in Christ. Notice how many times in verses 7 to 8 Jesus Christ is mentioned. Count them with me. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. In other words, where's the locus? Where's the place of this joy? Him. Jesus Christ, five times. Christian joy is not a doctrine or a, a dry set of beliefs. It's not in some kind of abstract spiritual state or Christian experience in general terms. It's in Christ. He is the place of our joy. He is the, the pearl of great price. He is our all and everything. He is more precious to us than 10,000 princes or kings. He is our heart's delight. As the hymn says, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but his love abides forever. Through eternal years, the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus. Sweetest comfort of my soul. With my saviour watching o'er me, I can sing though billows roll. When you grasp what he's done for you, that he's lived the life you should have lived, but he's died the death you deserve to die for all of the ways you've put your hope in wrong things. He becomes precious to you. You say, you died for me? When you are no longer naive about the state of the human heart and what you're capable of, that you are so sinful that actually you push Jesus to the periphery of your life and you would even say, no, 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 until you were banging the nails in with your own hands. You say, you died for me? And he becomes the source of your joy. You're all in everything. So joy in the context of suffering and difficulty, not in spite of it. Joy in Christ. And lastly, joy in Christ in heaven. Ever wondered what will be so wonderful about heaven? It's the inheritance that is talked about in verse 4, into this inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade, kept for you in heaven. Why is heaven so wonderful? Well, it's not some abstract experience, but heaven is wonderful because Christ is there and Christ is wonderful. In heaven, we see Christ face to face. That's our hope. In heaven, we are fully and perfectly with him. In heaven, we enjoy him forever. Richard Sibbs, a 17th century preacher, um, preached a sermon called Christ is Best. He wrote this. Is not marriage better than the contract? Is not home better than absence? To be with Christ is to be home. Is not triumph better than conflict? But to be with Christ is to triumph over all enemies, to be out of Satan's reach. Is not perfection better than imperfection? Here in this world, all is imperfect. In heaven, there's perfection. Therefore, heaven is much better than any good below. For all but shadows here, there in heaven is reality. What are riches? What are worm-eaten pleasures of the world? What are honours of the earth but mere shadows of good? At the right hand of Christ are pleasures indeed. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying to the person who's homesick or displaced, Christ is your home. Heaven with him is your home. To the person who longs to be married, he said, even the best marriage here is just a shadow of the heavenly marriage with Christ, to be married to him for eternity that will surpass all that make even the finest wedding here look like just rags and tatters. To the person fighting for justice and longing for victory and for justice to be done, saying Christ and heaven is vindication, is true justice. Every yearning of every human heart that says about this world, it should not be this way and fears a loss of hope because it's not the right way. It says heaven is the perfect world. Christ in heaven is your hope. Don't you see behind every longing of the human heart is a searching, is a, an aching, is a yearning 
for Christ and to be with Christ in heaven, to be home. Is he not our true home? Is he not our true bridegroom? Is he not our victory? Is he not the one who will restore this imperfect world to be a perfect place with him home? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you and praise you for the hope of the gospel, a living hope, a hope that is in the context, not in spite of suffering and death. May this hope push back on the hermeneutic of suspicion in our lives, uh, the loss of faith in difficult times, the sense that oh, we're always going to be let down by the world that leads to cynicism, or may this hope bolster um, us so that we're not naive, Lord, and instead help us to navigate that shore root between those two rocks, Lord, and to find hope in Christ, hope in with him in heaven, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.